would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm recording from and pay my respects to the Kamaregal people and their elders, past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from. Hi, my name is Sarah Malik and welcome to the SBS Book Club podcast. In this series, we'll dive into the year's best books through in-depth chats with the authors, some of the biggest names in Australian publishing. And this week's book club pick is the 2023 Miles Franklin award-winning novel, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens by Shankari Chandran. What I love about Shankari is that despite rejections from the Australian publishing industry, that her work wasn't Australian enough, she's put South Asian Aussie stories on the map. Shankari is also author of Song of the Sun God, The Barrier, and the upcoming novel, Safe Haven. Welcome to the show, Shankari. Good morning, Sarah. It's so good to see you. It's so good to have you always. I just love talking to you. First of all, congratulations on winning the Miles Franklin. How does that feel? Uh, it, I don't think I've still descended from the delirium, actually. I'm still excited and in disbelief and incredibly happy. So the book is set in a nursing home, Cinnamon Gardens, and the home's founder is Maya Ali, a grandmother and writer who tries to write stories inspired by her homeland of Sri Lanka, but is told they're not Australian enough. So she creates a pen name and becomes a bestseller writing breathless Australian frontier stories. How much did Maya's experience reflect your own experiences in the publishing world? So Maya is really who I want to be when I grow up. She's um, she's so much more confident and uh, she doesn't care too deeply about anybody anymore in the sense that she loves her people, but she also is prepared to live her life and I want to be like that when I grow up. Maya's publishing experiences very much reflect my own in Australia. My first novel, Song of the Sun God, we couldn't get a publisher in Australia for it because the Australian market um, publishers and agents were telling me that it was not Australian enough for the Australian market, that Australians wouldn't want to read it, that they wouldn't buy it. And that was really devastating for me. And Maya experiences the same thing, but her response to it is to create um, a pseudonym called Sarah Burns and to then write a character, a series of books about a frontierswoman called Clementine Kelly. Look, one of the criteria for the Miles Franklin is to show Australian life in all its facets. You basically won an award representing the pinnacle of Australian literature, despite being told your work wasn't Australian enough. Now, that must have felt kind of surreal. It felt really rewarding um, and vindicating because... I think it does show how much and how far the Australian publishing industry has come and the Australian psyche even around understanding the diversity of our stories. But it really did feel good to be able to say, well, 10 years ago, you you rejected my work on the basis that it wasn't Australian enough. And that certainly didn't feel good. But fast forward 10 years and the, a novel that essentially is a love letter to Australia and simultaneously critiques some of its deeper, darker issues around race was awarded the Miles Franklin Literary Award. Was there a little bit of, I mean, let's admit it, a bit of satisfying revenge at the publishers who rejected you? Look, it would be unprofessional of me to admit on public radio that I felt a sense of revenge. Um, <laughs> but I 
did feel there was a disproportionate satisfaction I took in receiving that award. And so Chai Time actually almost never got published because of your kind of disillusionment with the Australian publishing industry. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So I had published Song of the Sun God outside Australia. I had gone to a small Sri Lankan publisher in the end, then published The Barrier, which was a a post-apocalyptic fiction set in the future, world destroyed by religious wars and plague. And that had not sold particularly well. And in fact, to get it published, I had changed the protagonist from being South Asian to being white, um, just because by that stage, I recognised that I had very limited space to move within the Australian market. And I wanted to, I desperately wanted to be published here. That book, in fact, you know, really, I, I sort of joke, but I'm serious that sales of that were were buoyed by my father and my sister-in-law. Um, and then my third manuscript couldn't find a publisher. And so I figured my publishing career in Australia was over. And Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, when I sat down to write it, my fourth manuscript, I resigned myself to the fact that I would be writing this for myself. I would perhaps be writing it for my 300 cousins but I would not be writing it for a publisher or for the public. And that was quite, um, there's a a certain amount of grief in letting go of that dream. And at the same time, it was very liberating because I could then write as though no one outside my safe circle of of family was going to read it. And so I could write it with a a level of candor and honesty and directness that I um, perhaps have not had in the past. Yeah, ironically, it gave you this freedom to be fully unleashed. Correct. Yeah, and I mean, this book is a ripper. You know, there's racism, there's belonging, there's culture wars, there's family, there's war. It has everything. And the book centres around the Cinnamon Gardens Nursing Home, which is nestled in the quiet suburb of West Grove in Sydney, or not so quiet, and it's interspersed with the residents' flashbacks from the war in Sri Lanka. Um, Cinnamon Garden is such a beautiful place. It's such a safe place for them. Can you tell us about the inspiration for the setting of the nursing home? Yes, the nursing home called Cinnamon Gardens is based on the nursing home where my grandmother lived the final years of her life. And it's in Western Sydney. And we used to visit my grandmother regularly and I would take my children and my mother would often be there. Um, And because there are a lot of Sri Lankan Tamil residents in the nursing home, we would run into our extended family visiting their amamas and apapas in the nursing home. And we would run into our cousins and family friends. And so it was essentially a place of great community where you had many generations in the one place. And for us, because I'm fortunate, my grandmother was, you know, she, she only passed away last year. I was very fortunate to be able to be in a situation where we had four generations of our family alive and together. And she in her in her small nursing home room would be teaching us and talking to us and telling us stories of the past. And we were learning culture and family history and political history and religion um, and recipes all without realising that we were learning that. And so at some point in all of that, I thought, gosh, what an incredible place of storytelling. What an incredible place of community and what an incredible place to set a novel. Yeah, I mean, just on a side note, not just race, but it's so subversive in terms of age because we think of nursing homes as these kinds of sad places and they're depicted in a certain way. And, you know, um, Cinnamon Gardens comes alive. It's a place of history. It's a place of stories and community and family. And that's something really beautiful. Thank you. I, I think it's it's a place of agency as well. I think we, we, we think and assume... Um, that the elderly 
that their agency is somehow eroded over time. And I think at a certain point in their lives through health and you know that that deterioration, it can be so, but it can also not be so. It can also be that they live uh, and often live fulfilling rich lives and have so much to contribute at any stage and at every stage, including these last stages of their life. Yeah, I love that because, you know, your first book, Song of the Sun God, it's set mainly in Sri Lanka with Australian elements. And the key characters there are Neela and Rajan, who are this young, beautiful couple. He's a doctor. They have an arranged marriage. But in this book, in Chai Time, it's uh, Maya and Zakia, and they're a very different couple. Mm. So, you know, Maya is a self-proclaimed spinster at 39. Zakia is a Muslim. He's 41, an academic. And they have this kind of rebellious love marriage. And I think the book kind of highlights the fact that older people, um, they have these histories of being radicals and, you know, people who are rabble-rousers. And um, I love this couple. What do you love most about this couple? Uh, on a very intimate, personal level, I love their meet cute in the library. The, the Jaffna Public Library is one of my favourite places for, for all that it represents for the Tamil people, a repository of our culture and history. At the same time, I love any public library. And, you know, who doesn't want to meet a really cute South Asian boy at a library? So You were basically just replicating my fantasy. That's it. I was living the fantasy for all of us, Sarah. Um, <laughs> Or rather, I was writing the fantasy for all of us. And so that's sort of personal level what I love about them. I think on a less quirky, cute level, I love about them the fact that they are both very different from their own communities. They are on the margins of their community. They love their communities. They contribute to it. Um, they are loved by their communities. And at the same time, there's something about their nature. And you, I think you use the word rebellious. There is something rebellious about both of them. They've chosen life paths and career paths that was not expected of them, um, where their elders and their community wanted something different, wanted something else. And they've actually said, you know what? I'm going to follow my purpose and my passion. And that coincides for the two of them. They meet and they realize they are kindred spirits. They are fiercely independent. They are passionate about the things that they've pursued. And they they find their equal in each other. So that that is what I love the most about them. And and even and even at the end of their lives, despite everything that's happened to them and the way in which um, the, the choices that Zakia ended up making towards the end of the novel, while she might um, have been frustrated with him about some of that, they never stop being each other's equal and each other's partner. I love that about them. It's such a great love story, you know, and they give up so much for love because Zakia is Muslim and Maya isn't and for intellectual freedom and honesty. Um, and that's really the conflict that, you know, we see in Zakia and that creates a strain in their marriage. The fact that all the things that they love about each other is also the things that, that potentially strain the marriage. Um, Going back to Jaffna Library, where the couple meet. Now, this is a really kind of central focal point in both of your books, Jaffna Library. And look, I I cried during that scene in Song of the Sun God when Jaffna Library was burnt down. And Jaffna Library is such a pivotal focal point um, for you in your work. Um, why is that? 
it's it's not just a focal point for me and it's a focal point for for all Sri Lankan Tamils because it is a place that not only physically held so much of our history it was a symbol of our place in Sri Lanka and our right to be there and that history in in a sense is very much the point that the novel makes or a point that the novel makes about the fact that if you own and claim history and have the the power to rewrite it then you are owning a people's right and ability to exist in that country there now and in the future it's interesting because that kind of sits aside another kind of um cultural icon that represents history but in a very different kind of way um the james cook statue that sits in Cinnamon Gardens Nursing Home and that is actually torn down by Zakia and you know this is kind of a very central focal point and a dramatic scene in the book and sets up um, a lot of the the other scenes i was wondering if you were influenced a lot by i think a few years ago there was like a movement like around black lives matter of kind of tearing down these colonial statues which represented a particular version of history yeah I was 100% influenced by that because I had I had written the first 50,000 words of Chai Time at Simon Gardens and then felt disenchanted and very concerned about the novel. I just thought this is not going anywhere. It's it's not it's not even very good. I don't know what to do with it. And so I put it down for a little while and worked on a different project and I came back to it at the beginning of 2020. And then we went into the Black Lives Matter movement. George Floyd was murdered. First Nations families and communities were marching about deaths in custody and, and the the disadvantage faced by First Nations communities, particularly in the justice system. And statues started to come down. And I needed, from a literary perspective, right, from a writer, this is me speaking now with my writer's hat on or pen in hand, I needed an inciting incident that would take Gareth from where he was, a man you know, destroyed by grief and all of those things, emasculation and underlying racism to someone that's willing to take the nursing home to the Australian Human Rights Commission. Now, let's talk about that, Jankari, because Gareth, 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 he is going to be a character that is going to set book clubs alight. Who do you think should play him in the TV adaptation that I hope for one day? Joel Edgerton. <gasps> so good. Because I'm in love with Joel Edgerton. He's just an amazing actor. Well, see, I agree. He can do it. But, I mean, I want to talk about this with you later. <laughs> or on radio, in case Joel Edgerton listens yeah. to your show, which I I'm mean, sure that he does. I'm like, Joel, hey, hi. Call us. <laughs> Call us. No, Gareth is... Me first. I think we're going to have to have a bit of a rift in our friendship over this. <laughs> Let's not let a man, a white man, come between two brown women. No. That's right. Um, no, look, Gareth is a really big character in this book, and I really want to talk about Gareth. Like, okay, I really want to talk it. about Gareth. Um, so who is Gareth? Gareth is a councilman, and he's the friend of Maya's daughter, Angie. And, yes, I do feel like book clubs around the country could spend hours dissecting Gareth. And what you do so well is that it would be really easy to paint him two-dimensionally, but... What you do well is you paint him as this regular and even semi-intelligent guy and his devolution is really interesting and a lot of it stems from his inability to take responsibility for his emotions and actions 
And what's so scary about Gareth is that he's really aware of all these racist attacks that are happening in um, Western Sydney, which is a big plot in the book. Um, But he weaponises anti-vilification legislation and even the term racism to, I guess, protect his white fragility and male entitlement. Mm-hmm. Um, That's and exactly what he does. Yeah, he really does that. And so what I love is that you show how racism is not just these mobs who bash people, but it's also the nice man at the dinner table. Mm. How important was it for you to do that? So important for me to do that. I had originally, in the first draft, Gareth, again, sort of talking as a writer, in the first draft, Gareth was too one-dimensional. Too one-dimensional? Yes, too one-dimensional. And it took a few attempts and edits and, in fact, advice from my husband who never reads literature. The only, fi- the only fiction my husband reads is the fiction that I write. And he read, he was a first reader on this and he said, you know, Gareth needs to be someone that everyone relates to. And he was so right. And in the end, by the time I'd reworked Gareth, I think I have created a character. I hope I have created a character that you look at and think, I know Gareth. Gareth comes to dinner. Gareth coaches my kids' football team. Gareth makes jokes and I let the jokes go through to the keeper because I just don't want to make a fuss. And this is the next level of Gareth. I want the reader to realise that every one of us has a bit of Gareth inside us. We are Gareth and we are capable of this bigotry. We're capable of the um, the entitlement. We are capable of twisting and manipulating things. The question is, do we interrogate that? Do we, do we, are we aware of it? Do we challenge it? Do we try to change it? Damn. So true. All of that. Mic drop. Um, yeah, because, you know, there's the Sri Lankan residents of this home and they're survivors of genocide. They have experienced horrific racism, both in their home countries and in Australia, but they don't use their personal tragedy to lash out at anyone. Um, and then there's the Gareths of the world who use their tragedy and misfortune to do the opposite. Um, so there's no excuse. Right. But the thing is that you do have this sympathy because he's a man who is losing things. He's losing his family. He's losing his career. He's losing his mind. And so, yes, there's this kind of razor edge that's painted with him. And you're right. He makes us very uncomfortable because we can see ourselves a bit in him. Um, So you do that so well. Thank Thank you. Well, thank you for seeing all of that. And yes. And the, the thing with Gareth is that, you know, you you feel sorry for him, then you hate him, then you feel sorry for him, then you hate him. And I want you to go on that journey with him and feel those things simultaneously. And you perfectly expressed it, that he's losing things. He's losing his marriage, his child, his sense of purpose and um, the the self-esteem that comes from a job and doing that job well and feeling rewarded for it. All of that is slowly being taken away from him. And he doesn't know how to react to that. And we can all identify with that to some degree. And I wanted to explore the role of choice within that. What are are Gareth's personal choices? Where does he have agency? And where and how is it that sometimes we do things and then they literally escalate out of our control? And I think conversations and then eventually violence around race is one of those things that really can escalate. And one of the issues in the book that I wanted to explore was how do we talk about race in Australia? Why do we find it so difficult to talk about race in Australia? 
why does it become such an angry conversation so quickly instead of a respectful, loving conversation where we are together trying to find answers? Yes, because what I love about this book is that it's twofold, right? And so often, I think in the Western imagination, you know, those other places overseas, they're these unfortunate places full of calamities and war and violence, and that's somehow inherent to those places. But we don't have those. We're civilized, you know? And what you're really linking is that they're not so dissimilar and words matter, words are important, and words can lead to violence, as we see in the book where the the racial hatred that Gareth incites publicly leads to some really real consequences. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. We're never as far away from violence as we think we are. Um, look, in journalism, we have this saying, bearing witness, you know, mm. which is to say the role of journalism is to bear witness, to keep the world accountable to the horrors people in power commit against people who don't have power. And I feel like you actually really do this well in your fiction, you know, bearing witness. Um, And there's some really graphic scenes in the book as some of the characters recount torture at the hands of the Sinhala police in the Sri Lankan Civil War, a conflict that raged from 1983 to 2009. Why did you want to include these scenes and what kind of research went into them? So it's a difficult one, exploring trauma and violence through fiction and I think in, in any space really um, because for me what I'm trying to do is, as you say, bear witness. I'm trying to record those things that have happened that, that have been recorded in the past in human rights reports but are not widely known and not everything is recorded. In Sri Lanka, and this is a, a big issue and a big problem for that country's reconciliation and for the Tamil struggle, is that so much of what happened was not recorded or reported. It has not been accepted or acknowledged. There has been no formal or even informal truth and reconciliation process. And so then I look to fiction to tell that truth, to create an archive of what happened and to say that you can't hide and erase the truth. And I want to be respectful and honour the experiences of those that suffered it and survived it and also mindful of the feelings of those that are receiving it because you never want to be in that space of trauma porn. You never want to be a voyeur to trauma. But you do want to give people enough insight, particularly of those things that have been historically erased and hidden and denied. You want to give the reader enough that they feel, they see it, they feel it, they remember it, and they take it with them. And I remember interviewing a Sri Lankan doctor who had stayed with the, the refugees at the very end of the war. And he said to me, in Sri Lanka, we are not allowed to tell the truth. Without truth, there can be no healing. Fiction is an important way of telling the truth. What a gift and a privilege. Um, And this book really is an ode to reclaiming your story and reclaiming your history. And, you know, you describe it so well how war destroys people and war propaganda actually destroys more because it destroys knowledge and identity and it steals the soul of a people. And this is a fiction book, but there is so much rage and truth telling in it. Rage Against War, Rage Against White Australia, that forces you to be the grateful migrant, despite all the humiliations that men like Gareth impose on women like Angie. I wonder if there's something very soul-affirming about 
you know, being able to tell these stories. Yeah, I think it's it's a very powerful thing to be able to tell your own story and to tell it honestly in the way that you want to tell it, not just in the content of the words themselves, but also in the way, for example, that any culture's own storytelling traditions are peculiar and particular to that culture. And so South Asians and Sri Lankans within that, we tell stories in a certain way. And I wrote this novel in that way. And so it is incredibly affirming and empowering to be able to tell it and to be able to share it, and even more so to see it received so warmly, to see it received with such love from readers across every generation and across every culture, because it didn't just land with South Asians. It didn't just land with migrants. It has landed with white Australians who are reading it and saying, I've thought and felt it, and now I can thank you for articulating it, or saying to me, I hadn't realized it was this bad, and it was difficult to read, but I wanted to read it, and I knew I needed to read it. And so that has been incredibly affirming. And then around that is the fact that the story, whilst it's difficult and challenging, is also full of love and laughter. I would like to think that it is a funny story because life is funny and families are funny, whether they are Australian Tamil or Australian Pakistani, they are hilarious. And I have tried to bring that to the story as well because it's impossible to write life without writing the humour as well as the tragedy and then the humour again, because that's the way it goes. One of my favourite scenes in the book is um, there were some feminist vibes in this beautiful scene. Um, Thank you. Where um, Maya and another elderly resident, Shanti Sagaram, get into a fight about the order of the gods in the prayer room. And, and Shanti's very status quo and she prefers a patriarchal line of command with male Shiva prioritised. And Maya wants to see the female goddess Saraswati of wisdom at the front. Um, and Hindu mythology plays such a beautiful role in both your novels. How important was it for you to infuse your book with this kind of beautiful mythology? So important, Sarah. I, you know, we are, in terms of research for this, from the time we're children, we are told these stories of mythology. That's how we learn religion, how we learn our values and culture is often through the mythology and the storytelling of mythology. And I love my culture. I, I have had throughout my life the, the typical difficult relationship that one has with culture, particularly when you are a third cultured kid. Um, which you so beautifully explore in Desi Girl. And I've come to the stage in the age of my life when I am accepting of it and grateful for the ways in which it has empowered and enriched my life. I'm aware of the ways in which it, it has limited my life at times. And my learning from that is to take the strengths, to leave behind the weaknesses and try to give those strengths to my children. And our food, our values... Um, our ways of being, our ways of speaking, our ways of loving each other, our ways of berating each other, and then our ways of loving each other again are all in this novel. And I heard that you reread the Mahabharata as part of the research for this novel. Constantly. I like to reread the Mahabharata in between books, in between everything. <laughs> in between seasons of Narcos or Netflix, I like to read the Mahabharata. <laughs> Just a little light reading on the side, you know? Um, 
And, you know, just on a personal note, you know, what role does, I guess, religion and spirituality play in your own life? Because, you know, I read somewhere that you wrote, writing is my prayer and meditation. I cannot meditate well and I do not pray often, but writing connects me to something that is powerful and present, something I don't think I have the right words to describe. Writing like prayer and meditation connects me to something pure and strengthening that I know must be divine and words help me connect with God. Can you tell us about yeah, writing as a spiritual practice? Well, I feel like you just summarized it by me summarizing it. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for researching so well and so deeply, Sarah. Sorry for the long question. You are an excellent interviewer. I, as I said in, in that, I'm terrible at my religious practice, increasingly so much to my parents' dismay. Um, and my father is always asking me when I do an interview or I do a speech, he's like, did you remember to say that you have learned human values and that Hinduism is an important. I'm like, no, Appa, I did not remember to say that because it was completely not appropriate for me to raise that. And at the same time, Hinduism and the values that we've learned are so much a part of my my lived experience and how I live my life without sounding sanctimonious, right? Because I'm a, a, I'm a, a failing Hindu on a daily basis, minute by minute, I'm failing. And at the same time, writing has given me this incredible connection that I'm so grateful for because it connects me, I feel, to my true self in the way that we are taught that prayer and meditation and religion and service is supposed to do. I can feel the presence of something more and better than myself when I am writing. It is complete mindfulness when I am writing. I'm only there in that moment of writing. I am nowhere else. And I am feeling as though my, all the cells of my body are electrified by this energy that could only be divine. Wow. And I have heard that you often have some spooky moments during writing where you hear the voices of your characters when you write. Is that right? Friday is my writing day. And so I will try to write a little bit, particularly during the first draft of a novel, four times during the week, to, just for 20 minutes to take me back into the world. But on the Thursday night when I go to bed, I talk to my characters and I say, what are you going to do tomorrow? And I tell them that I'm coming back. I'm coming back to the world that I've created. They're inside my head. I'm telling them I'm on my way. What are you going to do tomorrow? And then I just have to watch them and write it down. The other part of this is that I have felt throughout my life, particularly for writing Song of the Sun God, I have definitely felt the presence of something around me that wanted that story to be told. And I don't want to put a name to it. I, you know, I think people, my mother will call me and um, uh, ask about my mental health if I was to try to describe it. But there are times when I write and it's almost as though I close my eyes and then reopen my eyes and it'll be two hours would might have gone past and I won't have a memory of what I've written, but it was obviously me that wrote it because I'm right there at my computer and nobody else is there. But I won't know how I put that together. And that is a very special experience. That is a gift from the universe to me and I'm very grateful for it. 
I'm getting chills. And last question, Shankara, you do have a new book coming out. You're just amazingly prolific. Can you tell us a little bit about it before we head off? Yes, I'd love to. It's called Safe Haven and is out in May with Ultimo Press. And Safe Haven is a love story and a a murder mystery set on an offshore detention centre hundreds of kilometres off the coast of Western Australia. And it explores um, what it means again to be Australian and it explores the inhumanity of our detention policies, but ultimately the the strength of community in um, in trying to provide the, a safe haven for people in need. God, sounds like another iconic book tackling some really big themes. I can't wait to read it. Thank you for being here, Shankari. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's been so much fun. Thanks for being part of the SBS Book Club. I'd love you to follow, share, rate or review the podcast if you're enjoying it. You can share your own thoughts and picks with the hashtag SBS Book Club. Join us next week as we're talking to another Miles Franklin Award winner, Melissa Lukashenko, with a First Nations epic, a love story set in 1855 and modern-day Brisbane. Get your reading on and see you then.